Thanks, Brian. Well, I became a follower of Jesus Christ when I was 20 years old. I was a sophomore in college, and some Christian guys invited me to play basketball with them on Friday afternoons. And so I got to know them there, and eventually they invited me to join a Bible study that they were a part of. And even though I, was a, I grew up going to church, I had never seen the type of lives that they lived. They had this joy and they had this, this life. And over a period of time, it was the most natural thing in the world, as I understood the message of the gospel. It was the most natural thing in the world for me to put my faith in Jesus Christ and begin walking with him. I just fell in love with Jesus through their example. And from day one, uh, there was a guy, he was on a campus staff, his name was Bob Bowen, who started investing in me. And even though I, I grew up going to Sunday school and camps and all that, I never had had spiritual conversations with people. And so it was the most uh, life-giving thing to have spiritual conversations. I could ask him any dumb thing that I had, any uninformed question I had, I could ask him, and he would patiently explain things to me. So that's how I started out the Christian life. Uh, That fall, I transferred to LSU to major in architecture, and that's what I like to describe as the longest six weeks of my life, okay? That was not a good fit, but uh, I went to LSU, and there I got involved in a campus ministry as well, and over the next three years, a series of men built into my life, and they, they taught me foundational spiritual practices. Uh, Dave Simmons taught me how to study and teach the Bible. Uh, Dave Buskell gave me uh, a vision for seeing Christ go to all the nations. Greg St. Cyr and Mike Metzger, uh, they taught me how to walk with God in, in prayer and fellowship and how to share my faith. And so I just, that, that process continued, that life-on-life input into my life. I was also given the opportunity to lead a Bible study in a dorm. And there were three guys there that became my closest friends in college, uh, Jim, Chip, and Scotty. And so we studied the Bible together. We shared our faith together. We got to know each other's families, and we became such close friends. And this may sound weird to you, but at at my last week at LSU, they were a year behind me, uh, we went to the... uh, track stadium at midnight, and we took a pail of water, and we washed each other's feet. We reenacted John 13, and it was just a way. This is a college thing. And we, we washed each other's feet, and we cried, and we told each other how, how much our relationship meant to each other and what it was going to mean to be apart. And if you had told me three and a half years earlier, you said, Steve, uh, after you trust Christ, you're going to have su- such deep spiritual friendships that when you graduate from college, you are never going to not have those relationships. I wouldn't have even known what you were talking about. That, that idea didn't make any sense to me, wouldn't have made any sense to me. But leaving college, I had, it was just built into my life, no matter what I did. And I wasn't planning to be a pastor at that time. No matter what I do, no matter where I go, I'm going to have these life-on-life relationships where other people build into me and where I build into the lives of other people. Today, as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see in chapter 2 how Paul described his own life-on-life ministry in, with the Thessalonians. And uh, as I'll, I'll, uh, so we're going to see it's a very foundational biblical pattern. And as I'm going to explain, uh, there is a huge need here at Faith and in the body of Christ in general for this type of ministry. 
Younger believers always need older, more mature believers to have this life-on-life influence in their lives. In that way, Christianity goes from abstract concepts to actual, uh, tangible, spiritual practices, a way of life. And so we're going to talk about that today. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. And the evidence in 1 Thessalonians suggests that there were some people outside of the church who accused Paul of being just one more traveling philosopher who would gain a following at any cost. And so they accused him of being deceptive. They accused him of being self-serving. And so in this chapter, Paul defends himself. And in the process, he gives us a very clear example of life on life ministry. And so we'll look at Paul's example and then we'll talk about having the same type of influence today. 1 Corinthians 12, verses one, or 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll see, beginning in verse 1, that Paul repeatedly tells them, you yourselves know this. In other words, he's appealing to their firsthand experience. He doesn't try to convince them of something that they haven't seen in his life. And so we start in, in verse 1 this way, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. If you were with us last week, we looked at chapter 1, and Paul recounted the fruitfulness of his, his ministry there. He says, we brought you the, the gospel with power, with the Holy Spirit, full conviction, and you, you wholeheartedly received it, so much so that your lives are full of faith, hope, and love. And so he said, you know that when we came, it wasn't empty, it wasn't nothing, it was substantive. And then in verse 2, he reminds them that when they arrived in Thessalonica, they had just been persecuted in Philippi. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And what he's making reference to there is described in Acts 16. And there we read that Paul came and actually there was a little slave girl who was demonized. She was, she was oppressed by this demon and Paul took mercy on her and cast out this demon. This little slave girl's master uh, was very unhappy at this and started this uprising. And the crowd got together and they ended up uh, beating Paul and putting him in prison in stocks. And that was in violation of his rights as a Roman citizen. He had a right to a, a fair trial and a fair process. And if you read, you'll see in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, they're praising God. They're singing hymns. God sends the earthquake. The prison doors, uh, the jail doors open up. And if Paul and, and Silas had fled, the jailer would have been, probably would have been executed for negligence, for letting these prisoners uh, escape. But they stayed, they shared Christ with this man, and his entire household came to faith. At that point, nobody would have have accused Paul of of being lazy if he'd said, you know, after all that, I'm going to take a little break. I'm just going to lay low for a while. But he didn't do that. He went to Thessalonica, and we read here that he picked up right where he left off. They declared the good news about Jesus in the midst of much conflict. And so nobody could really accuse Paul of being self-serving. He, his whole life was uh, for, for the benefit of other people. To the contrary, we read in 3 and 4, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In verse 3, he's talking about his motives here. He says three things. First, our message about Jesus contained no error. Everything they said about Jesus was true and uh, about who he was and the life that he offered. Second, their motives uh, contained no impurity. And that's a, a term that had the connotation of sexual impurity. Uh, uh, religious prostitution was a very common practice in that day. And so apparently some people accused Paul, well, the reason why you want to gain this following is so you can take advantage of people sexually. He said, no, there was no impurity. And third, he said, we made no attempt to deceive or trick you into following Christ. They, they didn't promise them anything that the death and resurrection of Jesus hadn't secured. And so he says, as, as good stewards of the gospel, God, it belonged to God, God entrusted it to Paul as good stewards of the gospel. We shared it faithfully and accurately, and uh, our loyalty was to the one who gave it to us, God himself. And so before God and before, before God and before others, uh, they had a clean conscience. And I look at this example, and it makes me, me ask, really be honest about my motives. And I would encourage you, as you represent Christ in your family, uh, to your children, to others in your families, you represent Christ in your dorm or in the workplace or in your neighborhood, what are your motives? Are your motives to make yourself look good or look spiritual? Is it a box to check? Yeah, I'm supposed to do this, and this is a spiritual thing to do. Or do you say, God has entrusted me with this message, and it's a message of compassion. It's actually good news, and I want my friends, I want my kids, I want my coworkers to have the same life that I've, I've been given in Christ Jesus. Before God, there's no impure motives. I, I just want people to experience life. And so I would encourage you, as you think about the influence you have, just to take some time, be honest before God about your motives. It, it really matters. It, it just affects everything you do, what you do and how you do it. Look at 5 and 6. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so Paul was passionate about people coming to Christ, but he never watered down the message. He never manipulated people with flattery. He never preached the gospel for personal gain. He never sought personal glory. And so he's, he's just, honestly, what a freedom to be able to say, before God and before people, I, I really have not done anything wrong. When we come to verses 7 through 12, Paul uses these images that are descriptive of a healthy family. He's going to talk about a nursing mother caring for her children. He's going to talk about a father who admonishes and exhorts his, his uh, kids. And uh, what, he, what he's talking about here are the affections and the commitments that we need when we think about life-on-life -life ministry. And so when you and I have this type of influence in the lives of others, it may not be as full-orbed as what Paul is describing, but there are certainly aspects of what he describes that every one of us can imitate. Look at verse 7. He says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not only words, 
but our own selves, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. I find this so teaching. Okay, so Paul was a grown man, right? In the city he just left, he had been beaten bloody. He had been thrown in prison. And yet when he comes to the Thessalonians, he's so tender. He says, I, I have this affection for you. I, I cared for you the way a nursing mother cares for her own children. If there's any tenacious fierce type of love. It's the love that a nursing mom has for her kids, right? She doesn't, she would do anything for those kids. That's the way Paul was spiritually. He came to them and he said, I I didn't just give you words. I gave you my very life. He said, you know this, you know, I'm not making this up. You know, I gave you my very life. And I would just say this, and I know you know this, but in in our day, in the digital age, when there are so many voices and so many perspectives coming at us, independent of relationships, there is no substitute for another flesh and blood, real life Christian who can look you in the eye and say, I have such a deep affection for you, there's really nothing I wouldn't do for you to see you walking with Christ. I don't want to just give you words. I will give you my very life so that Christ might be formed in you. There is no substitute for that. If you do that, if you have that type of influence in the lives of others, they will see what it means to walk with Christ versus just hearing words. And so again, this is God's plan. This, there's no substitute for life-on-life ministry. Having transparent relationships with someone who's a few steps further down the spiritual path than you could be the difference between spiritual health and spiritual disaster. People who are isolated from the body of Christ, who are isolated from others, who are more mature, who know how to walk with Christ, uh, it's a very dangerous condition to be in. And yet it happens all the time. In verse 9, Paul talks about how strenuously he had worked to support himself financially. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers." Now, Paul did reserve the right uh, to be supported by churches as an apostle of Christ. But when he initially came into a city, he, he didn't take money from the people he was trying to reach because he never wanted to give the impression that I'm selling salvation, that the gospel was a commodity that they could buy. And so he says, I came to you, I worked night and day. And Paul was a tent maker. Okay, he actually literally made tents. He probably worked with leather, and it was probably in his shop where he he talked about Christ and where he reached people for Christ. And so again, so again, he says, "You remember this. You yourselves know that we weren't a burden to you." Then in verses eleven and twelve, he talks about how he approached his influence in their lives the same way that a good father would approach influence in the lives of his kids. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He said, we exhorted each one of you. And so surely there was general teaching 
but he also gave individual attention to believers there. And this is what a good father does because uh, different children need different proportions of instruction. Some need detailed instructions. Other need the, others need the big idea. Some need more encouragement and affirmation. Others need more exhortation and challenge. And if you read Paul's letters to individuals, uh, to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, it's very clear that Paul, uh, Paul custom-made what he said, how he said it, uh, to meet the needs of that person. He understood their giftedness. He understood their, their context. He understood their, their circumstances. And so Paul says, I came to you as a good father. That's, that's the care that I had for you. And so when you you put this picture together, as Paul defended his motives, we have this wonderful picture of life-on-life ministry when it came to motives and when it came to methods. And so I want us to think about how how we can emulate Paul and live out this example here at Faith and in the body of Christ here in Manhattan. And so I want us to think, first of all, about existing relationships and then about uh, future relationships, aspirations for this, this type of influence in the, in the future. So existing relationships. Uh, think about life groups. Here at Faith, we call it life groups. If you're in a campus ministry, maybe it's called a Bible study or a care group or it could be called any number of things. But Uh, generally speaking, those groups are a place to develop spiritual friendships that can develop into these discipleship, life-on-life relationships. And so our encouragement to you when you get into a life group or a Bible study is to enter in wholeheartedly and intentionally as opposed to passively, okay? And so We'd encourage you, don't show up and kind of cross your arms and say, I dare you, show me what you got. Bring me your best Christian stuff. Uh, Befriend me. Now, if you do that, you're probably not going to develop spiritual friendships. We would encourage you to go in wholehearted and say, I'm going to be the type of spiritual friend that I want others to be to me. And so I'm going to love you fervently. Think of the one another's of Scripture. I'm going to love people fervently from the heart. I'm going to bear other people's burdens. I'm going to speak the truth in love. I'm going to accept these people the way God in Christ has accepted me. I'm going to love them fervently from the heart. And so if you do that, if you are active in entering into these, these Bible studies and life groups, then chances are you're going to have spiritual friendships. And many times, those spiritual friendships can blossom and grow into life-on-life discipleship. Or think about parenting. If you have children, okay, or if you have grandchildren, you have already been given the assignment to have this type of life-on-life influence that we've been talking about today. And your charge is not merely to impart words, just talk to your kids. Your charge is to share your very life. About the best thing I've seen on, read on parenting, uh, parenting teenagers anyway, is Eugene Peterson's book, Like Do, D-E-W, Like Do Your Youth. And that's taken from Psalm 110.3, where youth is likened to do on the grass. And so youth is not a, or adolescence is not a problem to be solved. Uh, like do, if you just wait long enough, it will disappear, okay? And so it's not a problem to be solved. It's an opportunity for parents to grow up. 
What Peterson says is that many times what happens to Christian parents is that Christian parents stop growing themselves, and so they're not sharing out of their lives. They stop growing, and they start trying to uh, narrate their kid's life, and they just tell their kids how to live as opposed to sharing with their kids. This is how I'm living. And so Peterson advocates, and I really agree that it's a biblical pattern, is parents should think of parenting as an apprenticeship where the parents say, hey, I want you to look over my shoulder and I want you to see how I am living the Christian life, how I'm walking with God. And the freedom here means that you don't have to do everything right. You can show what your kids, show your kids what you need to do when you get things wrong. Look over my shoulder and see how I resolve conflicts with other people. See how I consider it all joy when I encounter various trials. See how I resist temptation. See how I confess my sin to God and to other people. And so in this way, your kids see a tangible example of what it looks like to walk with Christ. And I know for myself, uh, my kids are very unimpressed with all my like ninja pastor skills. You know, they just, they were just unimpressed. And so many times when, when I try to share, share, you know, the Bible with them, they just kind of glaze over. But when I shared real life stories about some of you here in the room. Thank you for these examples. But when I share real life stories, I mean, they're locked in. I mean, that is interesting to see how I'm dealing with real life situations. And so uh, if you are a parent, you have this opportunity. And my observation is a lot of times we practice on our kids and then we give our best stuff to somebody else, somebody else's kids. And like they say, if you're not dead, you're not done. And so you, you will have opportunities the rest of your life to invest in those that are younger. Think about Sunday mornings. Sometimes people establish relationships on Sunday mornings that develop into deep friendships. I know some of you don't get up on Sundays going, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to people. <laughs> I'm going to develop relationships. But sometimes this happens. Uh, last week, I, I saw a goodbye between a couple and a grad student who had just graduated uh, from K-State. And it was a tender goodbye because about a year and a half ago, this couple had befriended her. They had a lot of meals together. They got to know, they got to know her. And uh, it was a tender goodbye. And it started with an introduction on a Sunday morning. Uh, if you haven't been here this summer, I should warn you, we've started this new practice here at Faith where at the end of the, the service, after the benediction, after the blessing, we ask you to turn and just have a simple conversation with somebody that you don't really know yet. Just take a couple of minutes, introduce yourself. We put a question on the screen in case you need help uh, starting the conversation, but it's just a chance to to just start a relationship, a conversation. And when I introduced it a few months ago, I told this story that I'll recount again. This happened about, uh, about four years ago, four or four and a half years ago. There's a man, after the service, he turned and introduced himself to the college student, the guy that was sitting beside him. And they struck up a conversation and they struck, struck up a friendship and this man, he's a farmer north of town, he ended up hiring this college student, and this student worked for him for three years, and this man discipled him. He built into his life, and, and they studied scripture together, and it was this life-on-life -life ministry. It was, it was life-changing for this guy, and here's the backstory. 
Uh, this guy came to church that day. That was his first time coming to church at K-State because he was interested in a girl who attended faith. And there are worse reasons to come to faith, right? Uh, <laughs> there are better reasons, but there are also worse reasons to come to church. And she basically told him, unless you have a serious relationship with God, you don't even have a chance with me, okay? And so he came to church, and this, this relationship uh, I did their wedding this this summer, you know, and so this relationship was life changing for him and for her. And so never underestimate what God might do through a simple initiation, simple taking initiative to get to know somebody. The workplace. I don't have time to develop this topic, but some of you do a masterful job. The work you do, many of the good works God has prepared beforehand for you to do happen in the context of your work. And some of you are masterful at developing relationships and and spiritual friendships and sharing Christ and mentoring people in the context of your work. Well, let's think for a few minutes uh, about future relationships. You know, as we look toward the future here at Faithy Free and in the body of Christ in general, uh, the need for people who excel in life-on-life ministry is, is only getting uh, more important and more important. Fewer and fewer people are raised in families where they have a mom and dad who are spiritual-minded Christians who are discipling their kids. And so a lot of people come to Christ in, in college and, and need people to mentor them. Uh, during those important years and later. And on occasion, we've been able to pair up younger women with more mature women, uh, younger men with more mature, mature men. And these relationships can be life-changing. I'll tell you one that, that I was, I was uh, privileged to be a part of. It was about 12 years ago. Uh, some of you know Thomas White. You know Thomas White? He came to me after the service, and uh, he said, Hey, Steve, I wonder if you'd mentor me. I'm like, Okay. He said, yeah, but I, I don't want to meet you at Starbucks for an hour each week. Uh, I want to come to your house and have a meal with you and your family every week. And then I thought we could hang out and I could, uh, we could uh, study the Bible and pray. I'm like, dang, Thomas, okay, that's quite an ask. Let me, let me talk to my wife. And so I talked to Brenda, and she was actually up for this. So for about a year and a half, Thomas came over to our house on Thursday nights, he ate my food sitting at my table, and then we'd go to the basement, and we would talk and pray and study the Bible, and usually at some point I'd have to say, Thomas, uh, you know, it's kind of time for you to leave. I've got other things I need to do, much blue bloods at, at nine, and so, or more spiritual things I need to pray by myself. But, uh, and so Thomas would leave, but this was just a life-changing relationship, life-giving for both of us. We want to see many, many of those type of relationships here at Faith. And some of you are ready to step into to this type of life-on-life discipleship. And uh, uh, you've experienced it firsthand, and you have a lot to give. And we can facilitate these relationships on occasion, but there's a much greater need that we've begun to address. And so here's my simple challenge for you. What I would wonder, uh, what, what I'm asking you today is, will you make it your ambition to become the type of person who can disciple or mentor others?
Will you make it your ambition to be that kind of person? And some of you are ready, and, and again, there's a lot of people here at Faith that already uh, do this. You give away your life the way Paul did. And it can happen in one-on-one relationships. It can happen in, in smaller groups. The format can vary. But the thing that is essential is that you have to have the kind of life that others should imitate, okay? You need to be the kind of person that others should imitate. And then you need to be willing to live a transparent life. You need to not hide your light under a bucket, okay? And so it is not presumptuous for you to think and for you to desire. I want my life to get to the place where I can say to others what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. It is not presumptuous to say, I want to be the kind of person who can give away not just words, but his, her very life. And so we need men and women far beyond the team of elders and far beyond our pastoral staff, uh, many, many people who can and will do life-on-life ministry. This is our calling in the body of Christ. There really is no backup plan. We have to have this to carry out our mission. And so what I'm asking you is, are you willing to make it your ambition to become the type of person who can mentor or disciple others? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would would give us this desire, a burning desire, to be used by you in the lives of others. And God, we know that it can be the difference between spiritual health and spiritual disaster. And so, God, I pray for every person in this room, wherever he or she is in in, uh, their their spiritual journey, that we will all have it as our ambition to be the kind of person who can have a a powerful impact on the lives of others, where we can give away our lives very naturally, very effectively. And, God, we pray that you will, will open our eyes to what needs to happen to see that be the case. And so, God, may this be a joyful endeavor. Uh, lead us to the place we need to be. God, you are our our King and our Lord, and so you have the right. We submit ourselves to you in this way. God, as we give tithes and offerings, we do so as an expression of our love. We do, do it as an expression of faith. Everything we have, you've given to us, and so we give back a portion now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.